Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, and I'm so glad to be with you today, and even more glad to be crossing the divide with Jessica, the reporter Stone. Jess, I haven't seen you in a while, and you yeah. have some really wonderful news to share with us since the last time we hung out about the Afghan family you've been helping. Can you tell us a little bit? Yes, Reza Kateb and his three kids are out of Afghanistan. We have gotten them to another country, and they will be on their way to a Western country, hopefully by the end of next month. So oh, that's awesome. The prayers come in, guys. We really appreciate it. And we want this to continue to bless him and his family through the witness of what happens when people pray. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait to see it when you get when you get to see the family in person. And I want to see pictures and stuff. So I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> well, today I am so pleased and honored to introduce our guest. Many might know Dr. Russell Moore from his eight-year tenure leading the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission at the Southern Baptist Convention. More recently, the ERLC has been in the news for being, as one newspaper described it, a flashpoint of controversy within the SBC, most notably in reaction to Dr. Moore's opposition to candidate and President Donald Trump. And while that's all quite interesting, I am even more interested in all that Dr. Moore has contributed to our culture, what he's doing today, and um, the new position uh, that, that Dr. Moore accepted in the late spring of 2021. Dr. Russell Moore is public theologian at Christianity Today and director of Christianity Today's Public Theology Project. He is the author of several books, a couple of which I am enjoying right now, including The Courage to Stand, Facing Your Fear Without Losing Your Soul, Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel, I'm about halfway into that one, and The Storm-Tossed Family, How the Cross Reshapes the Home. A native of Biloxi, Mississippi, he and his wife Maria are the parents of five sons. Five sons, Dr. Moore. Y'all just had yes. to keep trying for that girl, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, if so, we never never arrived at her. So we have, <laughs> guess right. we weren't equipped for a daughter here. Oh, man. Well, I really appreciate you joining us. It's really a pleasure. Oh, glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I was thinking about your, your acceptance of the role at Christianity Today and in doing a little bit of research on your background. It's coming full circle for you in a way. It was yeah. It was pretty cool to learn. Uh, so for our, our listeners, uh, Dr. Moore's dissertation at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, as CT described it, examined Christian sociopolitical engagement, especially through the work of Christianity Today's first editor, Carl F.H. Henry. That's got to be especially meaningful for you. Well, yes, but I, I thought you were referring to something even further back uh, in the timeline, uh, which is that uh, Christianity Today was really formative for me as a teenager. And I, I sort of accidentally found myself there because I was reading CCM magazine, which was a magazine about uh, contemporary Christian music, and it referenced something in campus life. And then I went to Campus Life magazine, which existed then, and from that to CT. And so reading um, J.I. Packer and Philip Yancey and Chuck Colson and others uh, in, in Christianity Today was really shaping and formative for me as a teenager. Speaking of reading material, I was curious, you, you did your dissertation and, and taught and pastored in Kentucky for a number of years. Yes. Uh, one of my favorite contemporary authors is Wendell Berry. Love his fiction. Oh, yes. Yeah. I, I was curious. So especially there's a collection of poetry I'm getting, going through right now on the Sabbath, but his nonfiction essays. And you've gone through, you, you impress me as someone who is an eager learner, a lifelong learner. And there are certain positions that, that are transcendent, that are consistent. You know, for example, the way that you underscore the gospel throughout all of your work from 20 years ago, from five years ago, from just this last year. Uh, but I'm curious how you digest certain material, 
like uh, Wendell Berry's nonfiction work, his essays, if you might have reacted to them differently 15 or 20 years ago versus how you might read them now? Well, I don't know because uh, Wendell Berry is one of the authors who has been with me all all along. I mean, there are some people you find uh, you find lately, and then there are people who have been you've been reading since you've been reading, and Wendell Berry is one of those. And there are people I think that one starts reading and then matures out of, or just uh, leaves. And Wendell Berry sticks around. I mean, he's uh, he's one of uh, Wendell Berry and Frederick Beekner and a few others uh, who <laughs> they've been around all along and have really shaped and formed my thinking in many ways. And also are people that I can read over and over again, mm. the same material again and still uh, benefit from it. And with Mr. Berry, it's particularly striking in that that's true in terms of the fiction, Jaber Crow and Hannah Coulter and 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 the entire corpus there, the nonfiction essays, Life is a Miracle is uh, is my favorite of his nonfiction, but all of it is uh, good and poetry. Uh, so he's he's one of the rare people who can operate in all three lanes and and do all of them well. Well, that's yeah, Jaber Crow. I, I always feel like I'm visiting with an old an old friend and a neighbor, yeah. you know. But I wanted to go back for a second to someone perhaps even more formative for you. You recently wrote a piece that lovingly described a difference you had with your father. Mm -hmm. He had great concerns about you going into the ministry, that he didn't want to see you have to go through what his father, a pastor, had to endure. Uh, going into ministry was a pretty significant way that you went against your father's wishes, but that was the exception to the rule. Uh, so I was mm -hmm. curious if you could tell us some of the ways that your dad did influence you. Well, I mean, I, I, can, I can recount a thousand ways that I know, knowing that there are 10,000 more ways that I don't know. Mm. And um, of course, he, he died a year ago uh, this month. And I've been thinking quite a bit over the last year about gratitude uh, as it relates specifically to him. Th this is going to sound strange, but one of the things that we we did together was to go to funerals. And I would, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a place where you reconnect with people you haven't seen in a long time. And I would always uh, wait to sort of hear my father's thoughts about after a funeral, about seeing someone and what's happened with that person and so forth. So it was really odd uh, to be at his funeral, which was, I think, the, the first funeral in my hometown uh, where I wouldn't be able to have that that debrief uh, with him afterward. But I mean, the the situation with ministry, I, I never felt as though I was going against his wishes because I knew he wouldn't he wouldn't want that for me, but I knew it wasn't it was out of the best of motives. And he said to me, I'm never going to bring this up again. If you decide to do it, I'm going to support you all the way. And he did. Mm. Uh, he said, but I just don't want to see you get hurt. And, uh, you know, he grew up in a parsonage. He saw behind the veil of, um, of the sort of politics, small p politics that goes on uh, within a congregation. He said, I just don't want you to have to experience that. And I don't want your future children to have to experience that. And then he never brought it up again. And uh, there would have been adequate time to say, ah, I told you so, or this is what I was talking about when, uh, but he never did. He never did that. So in that same piece, there was one other aspect that stuck with me. Uh, your father's, as you said, his concern had to do with quote unquote business meetings that took place around your grandparents' kitchen table or in their living room with deacons from the church. Yeah. And uh, as you describe it, at times it could turn into scenes that Machiavelli could have written as opposed to pictures of Christ-like love. And if any folks have followed what you've personally had to endure in recent months and years with the SBC, is perhaps exactly what your dad was concerned about. So this is what I was curious about. The, in the same article, uh, you describe a moment with your son while in the midst of your struggles with the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, you say, I invited my son to come with me to one of those business meetings where they read out their grievances against me. When we walked out, I asked, what did you think? He responded, that whole meeting was so angry and so stupid. Why do we wanna be a part of that? And you confessed, I didn't have a good answer. 
So have you had a chance to discuss it further with any of your sons? And do you have a better answer to difficult questions like that now? Well, I, I think I answered the question because I, I left and we, we started a, a new thing. And so that was my answer to it. And the reason, the reason he was even there is because he had asked my wife, uh, look, has dad had some sort of moral failure or mm. something? Uh, and so that was the reason that I said, why don't you come with me? I want you to, to be there and to sit there and to go through it so that you will know one way or the other what you think about it. And so that was, that was why, and, and that was a real turning point for me for a number of reasons. One, uh, and one of those reasons is because I had been a 15 year old who had gone through a, a profound spiritual crisis of, of asking what is real. Um, what about the gospel is real, or is this in fact, just uh, politics and Southern culture? I mean, that was a me. And, and I, came through that, uh, thankfully. But I, I've sort of spent my whole life talking to 15-year-olds like that, mm. regardless of how old they are and, and where they are. Um, so that's that's why I suppose I, I maybe pay, care, pay especially careful attention uh, to that. And also, I mean, the, the, the life that I live is in some ways much more intense than what my grandfather would have um, would have gone through, but in other ways, much less so. I mean, my my children don't grow up in a in a parsonage right next door to my workplace, and they never have, and so they haven't really experienced a lot of that in their home in that way. So. That's good. That's good. I have one one more question. I know Jess has a a, a bunch. But first, again, just something that really impresses me through your, your short form work, your longer form work, your, your books, is that you have a compass that always points to the gospel. It, it would be so easy, especially in the circumstances you've been in over the last couple of years, to get caught in the muck uh, of the day to day. But I'm just always impressed that you have a very clear compass in that regard. The gospel message always takes center stage. But I, I want to look at your book from 2016, Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. Mm -hmm. uh, there were some aspects of your analysis in Onward that were prescient, and some that one could say were, <laughs> I just thought they were maybe overly optimistic. Mm -hmm. In one of your opening chapters, you assert, if we are not a moral majority in this country, then what are we? I would argue that we should see ourselves as a prophetic minority. So in looking at the way some of your exhortations from this book have aged, I have a theological question for you. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know, but I grew up in a very observant Jewish home. Uh, we went to an Orthodox synagogue. So the, uh, the Hebrew scriptures are especially uh, special to me, um, even after having become a Christian 20 something years ago. So in looking at the prophets of the Hebrew scriptures, how they interacted. They certainly interacted with leaders and kings of, of empires. Think Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar, Joseph with Pharaoh. But if we look at the vocation of many of the prophets, weren't they engaging even more with the people of Israel, their, their own people? And, and specifically, I'm thinking of it in the context of the American church today. Well, yes, uh, but they're they're speaking to the people of Israel uh, to be, as as Isaiah would put it, a light to the nations. Uh, and so this this isn't an either or thing. The, the church does speak to the larger world, but the first way the church uh, speaks to the larger world is through her own integrity and credibility and fidelity to Christ. And so that's uh, that's key. Yeah. And by by prophetic, um, what what I mean by that as I unpack it is not necessarily standing in the, the place of Jeremiah or Isaiah or Ezekiel, but standing under the word of God, the, the prophetic uh, scripture, so that there's, there's an authority. And by authority, I mean something very different from the way that's often defined, to speak, because we, we understand the mission and we understand our accountability to the word of God. So that ought to change the way that we see ourselves and the way that we see the rest of the world. Yeah. I was just I'm very struck by the way you described yourself at age 15, because from zero to seven, I went through that same question and perhaps 
wrestled with it for long after that. But I grew up in, in my first church was in Mobile, Alabama. And it was, uh-huh. I was born to two Yankees, a Jewish convert to Christianity, a Catholic con- convert to evangelical Christianity. Um, so they didn't have the cultural trappings of uh, the Christian church that we were a part of in Alabama. And so I really struggle to understand that same question that you had. And really the genesis of it is how does it, how do you think evangelical Christianity got so conflated with Southern, white, rural, and Midwestern sort of wasp culture? And what about the millions of Christians around the world that don't have those racial and ethnic characteristics? Are, are uh, they any less of a Christian? I mean, I think you would argue not, but how did we get here? Well, I, I'm uh, teaching this semester on a secular uh, campus, and you know, most of my students are not are not Christians, and most of, some of them have never met another have never met an evangelical Christian until mm-hmm. now. And uh, I had Tim Keller come in as a guest uh, one day in our class, and uh, the students were asking him questions, and one of them said, "Why would you even um, Why would you even claim that word evangelical when it's become so?" Uh, conflated with all the political craziness and so forth. And his answer was, because most of us live in Africa and Asia and Latin America, and the North Americans aren't entitled to just change what we're called, which- I love it. <laughs> uh, you, could, you could see the student that was asking the question, kind of uh, the expression on his face seemed to say, fair enough. And uh, what I thought after that is that the most important part of what Tim said is the word us. Most of us live in Asia and Africa and Latin America. And that's uh, that's part of the vision of the church that we have to constantly be reminding ourselves of. I'm, I'm baptizing my fourth son on Sunday. Mazel tov. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, in... Uh, so he he is. I'm just thinking about it now. He was born on Mardi Gras and will be baptized on Halloween. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know what that means for for his life, but I'm baptizing him on on Sunday. And one of the things that uh, at our church that candidates for baptism do is recite the Apostles' Creed uh, beforehand. And the the line in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Catholic Small C Catholic Church. Uh, That's an important thing to constantly be reminding oneself of, that we're connected to a body of people all around the world and a body of people who exist right now in heaven. And that that ought to be the primary shaper and former of our identity. But it's always in every place. I mean, the, the dynamic that you can see with the kind of nominal cultural Christianity that you're referring to is... One can see that in in almost every context, and why? Because it is always useful for uh, power to have a religious uh, tool to to use. It's the reason why uh, Vladimir Putin uh, keeps very very close to the Russian Orthodox Church, and and uh, you know you you can just see this over and over and over again. And so if you can merge a culture with a religion, you can give the culture that illusion of the authority of the religion. Mm. So it's, it's useful for certain people. And, and that, becomes, uh, that becomes very attractive because most people really do want a kind of folk religion. So to, to go back to my funerals with my dad, one of the things that he would always joke about when we would leave a funeral is to say, you know, I'm blessed. I've been to thousands of funerals here at this church and every one of them for a saint, because uh, you, you you could hardly recognize sometimes the people uh, as they were being described. And, and before and after you would have people saying, well, he's in heaven now, or she's with Jesus now. And these were people that I would know to have no religious connection at all, but it's the kind of thing you say at at a funeral. And and that can easily become uh, the basis of an entire uh, structure. That's just, that's easy to do to make Christianity a means to an end. And, And we have to be constantly pulling ourselves away from that. Yeah, I've, I've struggled with words like evangelical and how those words have been hijacked. Just reading in the last couple of days that 
Trump's new social network is going to be called Truth Network or something like that. Mm -hmm. And at what point is it worth just seeding really important words like that? And I'm just not ready. They're like truth? Yeah, the word truth or evangel important words, big words. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm not giving up the word truth. And I have this conversation constantly, and I understand it because uh, I said in summer of 2016, the Washington Post, I, I don't even I don't even use the word not not to mean I was sort of leaving the description of myself as evangelical Christian, but meaning when I'm talking to people on the outside, I have to do so much explaining about what that means that I've just started using other words. So I understand that. The problem is uh, I haven't found an alternative to be able to describe what it is that um, that it means to be a Christian who emphasizes uh, the necessity of new birth and uh, the priority of evangelism and missions and um, and the authority of the Bible in this way. Man, there isn't a there isn't a useful alternative. So what I've decided is not to cede the word evangelical to the people who want to use it for politics, but to just be an evangelical Christian. Yeah. And um, I think that's, I think that's the way to go. Yeah. In the same way that uh, in the same way, I think that there were some people who, when they would see maybe some of the scandals with evangelists, became really sort of nervous about the word evangelism or the word revival, uh, rather than, I think, saying, no, no, these are biblical concepts that we should we should hold on to. Wow. Those were tricky years in the 80s with all those scans. <laughs> yes, it really, yes. But, but, nothing, but nothing compared to what we had to come later on. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I was going to get to this later, but since you bring it up, in an article you, oh, by the way, so I really enjoy your newsletter. Oh, thank you. It, was this published on russellmore.com? I forget exactly where I saw it. It was an article from February of this year, Enraged by Ravi. Uh, yes. What if you were converted or discipled under a ministry like, oh boy, I'm gonna get emotional talking about this. So uh, full disclosure, Ravi was um, not just a mentor, but a friend. Uh, mm. So. You concluded by saying, when someone you admire does something disgusting or evil, don't admire what is disgusting or evil. Uh, at the same time, don't let your rightful disgust turn you to despair. Mm -hmm. Many who come in Jesus's name are frauds. Jesus is not. So it's not just Ravi. I'm, I'm friends with his oldest daughter, Sarah, who is CEO of RZIM. Um, uh, <sighs> So I guess I should start by saying I'm painfully cognizant of the fact that there are victims. It's terrible. Uh, they should be heard. Crimes were committed. Uh, much has been written and discussed about this. But I want to explore some other difficult questions. For one, uh, my friend Sarah and uh, Ravi's other two children, Naomi and Nathan, are left with these excruciating questions, partly because much of what came out was after their dad died. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways many folks have found to deal with it is a different version of love the sinner, hate the sin. Uh, and this is something like love the gospel, judge the sinner or the convict or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. So my first question is, what, what do I do with the love I have for my friend? How do I mourn the death of my friend or Sarah, the loss of her father? Well, there are no uh, easy answers to that because, I mean, one of the one of the problems is seeing uh, seeing someone uh, that you thought you knew and seeing uh, an entirely different uh, side that was that was present there that you didn't uh, know about at the time. So I, I think we I think there are two temptations that are that are equally or, well, maybe not equally dangerous, but that are both dangerous. One of those is to say. Well, look at all the good that came from this person's ministry. That means we shouldn't really look at or dwell on what was uh, what was wrong and what was uh, predatory and abusive and so forth. That was the 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 Canacook seemed to take that approach. Well, it's the it's the approach that uh, that many people take. I mean, you can see that in uh, churches all the time, where people will say, "Well, uh, we have some problems here, but." 
we can't jeopardize the mission. And, and uh, often, you know, I'll find if you look at a church where there's uh, been a, a cover-up of some sort of abusive behavior, almost always behind that, there's someone saying, we don't want people to get a bad uh, idea of Jesus or of, of our church and, and so forth, uh, which is not only immoral, but also ineffective. Uh, that's just not the way Jesus deals with his own reputation. So that's a, that's a danger. And I think that danger can, can then continue over uh, into death. Uh, especially because when someone's alive, we we at least have the possibility in front of us that uh, that person is going to repent and come clean and be held accountable, and there will be some semblance of of uh, justice. And that's not the case when someone uh, someone is gone. But the the other temptation I think would be to see that and to be driven into cynicism. Um, because what has happened in every one of these situations is a misuse of trust for uh, predatory purposes. Now, that's not new. The New Testament is warning about that constantly. Uh, that, that's happening constantly. What the apostles don't tell us, the apostles don't tell us, uh, well, some of these false teachers have, have come out, evaluate whether or not you heard the gospel under someone who was later revealed to be a fraud. They say, evaluate whether or not you believe the gospel. Mm. And so Paul is able to say, there are people preaching the gospel for all sorts of bad motives and, and out of, uh, out of uh, pretense and pretension. Y your question, if you're somebody who heard the gospel in one of those venues, is not to just give over to cynicism, but to say, wait a minute, did Jesus send this person to do these awful and predatory things? And the answer to that is no. Did this person pick up on something that may be true uh, and used it for predatory ends? That's the question. And so I think that it's, it's, a, it's a danger there between this sort of uh, complicity or this sort of, uh, of cynicism, and it's, it's difficult. Yeah. Now that's a good word because I, I mean, my next question has to do with what I learned from working with Ravi and training uh, with RZIM. Uh, but regardless of how we answer the next question, the, you know, our, our, our theme verse uh, 1 Peter 3, 315 doesn't change. Sanctify the Lord in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you with gentleness and respect. That doesn't change. The word of God doesn't change. But so let me ask you a little bit, uh, kind of dig down on that. What, what I did learn from Ravi wasn't as cut and dry as the gospel message we, or, or the identity of, of Jesus. It was about how to engage with others. It was about how to nurture relationships. It wasn't just at a transactional level of say a magic prayer and go to heaven. It was mm -hmm. theological. And if, if that's what I learned from someone like Ravi or my friend did his dissertation engaging with the work of, of John Howard Yoder, what, what do we do with that now? Well, I, I think we, we take it as a warning. I think it, there should be a warning that comes to us saying, if someone can know uh, all of these these ideas and be able to communicate all of these ideas uh, this well. That does not in and of itself lead to holiness or, or to a transformed life. Now we know that intellectually, James tells us that, even the demons know there's a God in shudder. Uh, but but it's, it's, it's one thing to know that intellectually. It's another thing to see that uh, lived out uh, somewhere. So I think it's a, it's a cause for taking a sense of warning and saying, what, what happened? How does this happen in a life? And also then really committing oneself to look out for the people who are being mistreated and being abused. Uh, often what's happening in these situations is uh, you have people who uh, don't have the, the voice 
that someone like this uh, would have. So maybe there's a preacher, an apologist, or an evangelist who is by definition really quick on his or her feet uh, when, when it comes to communication and has an entire network of people uh, around that person. Uh, usually the person being hurt doesn't. And so that's um, th that's so there's a sense of a unique vulnerability for those those people. And what I've learned in recent years uh, is the the viciousness mm. with which some of these uh, victims find themselves uh, attacked simply for speaking about what has happened to them and about uh, their own experiences. And, and even in places that would have warned for years about moral relativism or sexual anarchy and, and so forth, when you see the moral relativism and the sexual anarchy uh, going on in those places, it, it can be deeply troubling. And, and I know that uh, firsthand with having uh, grappled with this stuff over the past several years, it can be... Uh, one can feel just unanchored and start to wonder, do I, do I know anything uh, about what's actually going on uh, around me? But I mean, the, the warning should be there. Look for the people who aren't going to be able to have a voice and who are being harmed and being mistreated and recognize that, that if there is no account, that there are all sorts of reasons why people will find to avoid accountability. Uh, the, the person's indispensable, the ministry's so important, the gospel can't be distracted. I mean, all of those, those things, you hear the same sort of thing over and over and over again. And we ought to, I think, uh, recognize uh, when we hear those things again. Dr. Moore, I wonder if you see any connection between the increasing number of Americans who describe themselves as nuns and some of this disillusionment that we're talking about with how evangelical churches and, of course, the Catholic Church as well, well-documented instances mm -hmm. of ignoring abuse from uh, generations. Do you see a connection there? And what advice would you give to those of us who have a member of our family that would be described as that uh, sort of nun, or maybe even an ex-evangelical, as you call them? Well, with ex-evangelical, what we can be referring to is any number of things. It can be, uh, for some people who are ex-evangelical, what they mean by that is, I don't want to call myself an evangelical anymore. But they're, they're committed Christians, and they're still, uh, they're still following Jesus. And then some people, by ex-evangelical, what they mean is, I'm an atheist now or a Buddhist now, or, or, or something else. Uh, so that word is, is kind of elastic. With the nun, uh, no religious affiliation, that's also a little confusing because people, people often assume that means atheist. Uh, when in reality, if you actually dig down, you'll find there are a lot of religious beliefs and and spiritual beliefs that, that, are, uh, that are often there. I think there are a couple of reasons for it. Uh, one of those things is changes in American culture and in world culture in many places. These changes mean that in the Bible Belt America, it's almost as though the computer program is set, the default is set to Christian. Mm. And that's why people would always assume when uh, their children uh, went off to college and stopped going to church, well, they'll be back. And what they meant was they'll get married, they'll settle down, and they'll 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 want to be a, a regular person. And so that means they will be a part of a church. That's not true. You, you don't have to be a, a part of a, a church now in American culture to be a regular American or to be a good person. So that has changed some of it. And then a great deal of it is exactly what you are, are saying. People who have seen awful realities present in the church. I mean, we have data on this from Ireland, for instance, as it applies to the Roman Catholic Church. There's a, a, a fantastic study called Mass Exodus 
about um, the, the Catholic scandals and and the demographic response to that in uh, Great Britain and Ireland and and uh, other places. So we have we have data on this, and I am seeing as I'm going around and talking to people a very different uh, a very different sort of um, crisis than the one that uh, perhaps I was trained uh, to deal with. Uh, when I started out in ministry, if you encountered uh, someone, a younger person who said, I'm, I'm not uh, involved with religion anymore, I don't uh, believe in religion anymore of any kind, usually what you would what you would find is somebody who either had some cognitive wrestling with uh, unbelievable to them uh, things in scripture so there was something uh, where they were saying i just i can't believe that dead people come back to to life or 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 something like that in scripture or you're going to find somebody who finds the moral teachings of the of the church too uh, difficult or offensive uh, and so I would have a couple times. Uh, I would have people who were ministry uh, students who would say, I- "I've become an atheist," and you know, at the time that usually meant that there was some sort of moral uh, issue going on that that the person was was trying to accommodate. Uh, that's not true now. Uh, what I'm often finding when I find people who are walking away from the church, the younger people. It's not that they find the teaching of the church uh, too unbelievable. It's that they don't think the church itself believes what the church teaches. And, uh, and so it's, it's usually not. If I could just pick up on that point, Mike, when you say, and I, and I love, I think you wrote this in one of your newsletters, that people don't think the church believes what it teaches. I think what you're really honing in on there is hypocrisy that a lot of people have walked away from the church because they don't believe the church is authentic. Well, sometimes, but sometimes the problem is I I told someone uh, yesterday, I kind of um, long for the quaint days of evangelical hypocrisy. (laughs) What do you mean by that? (laughs) Well, I, I, I meant that often what we see right now is not even, not even a, a pretense of uh, hiding behind uh, a mentality and an attitude that is shaped by Christ, uh, but instead an open. Um, I mean, there there are there are some times in uh, in church life where we see someone where, like we were talking about earlier, you say, "I, I had no idea uh, that this was going on, and I'm shocked by this." But rarely is that the case. Usually, we have people who have been telling us who they are over and over and over again. And so that's, that's not really uh, hypocrisy. Uh, it's, it's just as damaging, but it's something else so that there's not even the attempt to hide behind the mask. So the old uh, cliche that uh, hypocrisy is the tribute that, uh, that vice pays to virtue, there's not even the, the tribute to, to virtue. Uh, here and you can see that when you see things uh, like, for instance, uh, we were talking earlier about Wendell Berry. I found myself open-mouthed in shock uh, when uh, something that is in the the storyline of Jaber Crow uh, actually started happening. Uh, where in Jaber Crow, as he's cutting hair, he's uh, talking about uh, he he quotes "Love your enemies" and and um, uh, revile not against those who revile you. And, and uh, someone says, well, where did you get that? Where'd you get that communist talk or that liberal talk? Well, <laughs> I, I have pastors often who are telling me, I can simply come up and, and quote offhand uh, something from the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. And I will have people in my congregation say, why are you giving us those liberal talking points? Uh, you know, and you can you can see often not just people who aren't following the way of Christ, but people who often uh, will say that the way of Christ is itself weakness. That's one thing. If uh, if a Nietzschean says that, 
but when people who are giving out the the message of Christianity are saying that, then we're in a we're in a very different time. I recall the there's a report that uh, when you were leading the ERLC, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, uh, there was a report that you published called Faith and Healthy Democracy, a research mm -hmm. report on civility in the public square. Mm -hmm. So in the in the introduction, it says this report explores how American evangelical Christians might contribute to healing political and cultural divides in America. It also aims to identify gaps in American civic education and civic practice and to suggest ways to fill that gap. We hope to engage Christians on what healthy democratic participation looks like, how do we love our neighbors politically, and how might our faith lead us to advocate for human flourishing in the public square? So <laughs> this is just two years ago. Mm -hmm. Has your overall outlook changed on this? And if so, do you have, would you have different prescriptions for how to go forward from here? Not, not at all, because um, two years ago, uh, the, the problems were present as they are now. If anything, they're, they're more pronounced. Um, I think probably the only thing that I would emphasize more uh, right now is the way that, at least at the, at the congregational level, what I'm seeing happen is that often there's a small minority of people uh, within a congregation who want to tear the, the church apart. They're a small minority. There's a time when I would have said to people, you know, most of your people are with you. They love you. Even if they don't agree with you on everything, they support you. But what we can see now is that that small minority, when they're willing to do anything, actually can change the, the temperature of uh, the, the moral uh, and emotional temperature of a church. And so that has to be dealt with. And one of the, the problems is that uh, the healthiest people are uh, also the people who really do want to be unified and they want to, and they assume that most people are thinking the way they're thinking. They really want to be unified too. And if we just sort of ignore this, it will work itself out uh, and it doesn't work itself out. And the, the, the carnage it leaves behind is, um, is staggering. And so that, that has to be addressed. And so what I find myself saying uh, often to people who are members of congregations is to say, your pastor is probably in trouble and you don't know it mm. uh, because you don't see what's happening uh, behind the scenes and your pastor is not going to want to acknowledge because if he does he's sort of in a situation where if he talks about what's going on uh he's going to be called divisive and if he doesn't talk about what's going on he's just going to to suffer alone and it's going to continue to happen and so what has to happen is there has to be uh, in the way that that these small groups of people will organize themselves together to torment people uh, you have to have groups of people organizing themselves together to say, uh, we're going to, uh, we're not going to have that. Uh, that's, that's not going to be what our congregation is about. And so that's, that's got to, that's got to change where I think we, we have to engage with kindness and we have to engage, uh, which means we have to be paying attention to this uh, constantly and to the, you know, there's a, a fantastic book that was very helpful to me. And I usually don't find this kind of book uh, all that helpful, but it's called High Conflict by Amanda Ripley. And she talks about uh, why uh, the level of conflict, not just uh, sort of disagreements and, and arguments, but this, this level of irreparable sort of high conflict, as she calls it, happens. And one of those reasons is the, the presence of what she calls conflict entrepreneurs, mm. um, people for whom it is in their interest to see to it that there are, in many cases, imaginary issues brought forward merely for the limbic response uh, to those things. You can see that in American life, 
uh, more broadly right now. It's there, 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 there isn't an incentive structure to say, here are some things going really well in our country, and here are some challenges that we have. How can we work together to, to work on that? Uh, that, that, is, that is not going to raise money. Uh, what's going to raise money is my my opponents are evil and stupid and must be destroyed. Yeah. So if we took that tack, would I add a couple of zeros onto our our weekly downloads? <laughs> you, you probably would, and and, and you would. You, it, 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 it's very easy to be a hack. It really is. I mean, I I know how to do that, and and it would be easy to do it. But at the end of it, there's a judgment seat. You know. Yeah. Speaking of hacks, um, then <laughs> you gave it to me, Dr. Moore. Uh, of hacks, you said that uh, Donald Trump championed Christian power over Christian principles. And I thought the distinction that you've made in your writing was really important. I have a question about your thoughts on Christian nationalism. It's something we're seeing mm-hmm. written about much more prolifically. It's always tied to the evangelical churches. But I want to know from your vantage point, how widespread is this? I acknowledge it's a threat, but how pervasive is the threat? It's it's very widespread, and it it has been for quite a while, um, with this sort of uh, conflation of the gospel with um, an ethnic or nationalist identity. Now, having said that, sort of like the word evangelical, uh, when someone uh, asks me about Christian nationalism, I'm going to say, "What are you referring to?" Because uh, there, there have been uh, people who would say, uh, for instance, going all the way back to the Reagan administration, that anybody who is uh, seeking to engage the public square is is trying to create a theocracy uh, and so forth. I mean, that's the the boy who cried wolf is a cliche for a reason because mm-hmm. it it actually is pointing to a real uh, dynamic. But there is a, such a reality as Christian nationalism. And my problem with it is only secondarily what it does to the country. My prime, my primary problem is that it's heresy, hmm. uh, because what Christian nationalism does is exactly what the prosperity gospel does with the individual. Christian nationalism does with a a country. So a prosperity gospel will come in and take the blessings and curses of Deuteronomy, do an end run around Christ crucified in Galatians 3, bearing the curse and, and receiving and giving the blessings to apply it directly to the individual. This does this in a way. So you think of even, for instance, the use of 2 Chronicles 7.14. Uh, which will will often show up in these Christian nationalist uh, senses. If my people uh, who are called by my name will humble themselves, repent of sin, and pray, then I will heal from heaven and I will heal their land. The, the, the people there is uh, almost always being applied to the United States of America, and it's being applied in terms of political power. In a way, Second Chronicles 7.14 is in the context of the dedication of a temple through blood sacrifice with the uh, by the anointed king of the covenant people uh, with the glory of God uh, coming into that temple. These are all major issues, uh, the, the major issues of the New Testament uh, in the figure of Jesus Christ. If we do an end run around that, uh, then we end up with something that is something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's exactly what, I mean, Christian nationalism may be right-wing, but it's liberal. And it's liberal in the sense that J. Gresham Machen would define liberalism, uh, which I, I, I think he should have chosen a different word because it's confusing. But it, his definition of liberalism is basically the use of Christianity as a means to an end, no matter what the end is. And that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, we're, I know we're getting short on time here, so I want to make sure to share with our listeners that much of the articles that we're referencing and, and the content that we used as uh, to, to prepare for our conversation with Dr. Moore can be accessed on russellmoore.com. The newsletter can be, you can subscribe to the newsletter there. Uh, I've been enjoying, I'll continue to enjoy the Russell Moore show, the, the new podcast. Uh, so the last question that we have is, do you have any questions for us? 
yes. I mean, what are what are you seeing out there that gives you hope? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> Should I be a gentleman and let Jessica answer first? I'm <laughs> short because it goes to the question I had about Christian nationalism, which is that I continue to be shocked at the, those who say this is widespread because I truly am not seeing it where I worship. Um, and I think there's a concerted effort. And I live in the Washington, D.C. area. I know there's much has been written about some of the churches in this area in relation to uh, to difficult times. But I'm really grateful to say I'm not seeing it. And in some ways, I think back to my dad's own stand against the conflation of culture and faith um, when I was seven years old, which resulted in us leaving the church to maybe give me a little bit of a, a spidey sense about um, steering clear of those kinds of environments, but uh, it's probably not me. It's probably just the Holy Spirit. So we'll give God his due on that one. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was I was first going to say what gives me hope is you, uh, but not just you, Dr. Moore. Uh, we we've been able to have so many wonderful, edifying, enjoyable, fun conversations here, but really, what gives me hope is something that we touched on earlier when I regardless of these headwinds and, and confusing and difficult times and all these challenges around us, when I crack open the Bible, it starts, it still starts with in the beginning, God, mm-hmm. it still says what it says. Mm-hmm. So that, that gives me hope, but also how God reveals himself in other ways. And listen, I, there is a number of listeners who are secular, who aren't uh, religious per se, or mm-hmm. uh, so, so I, I'm respectful of that too. But even in conversations with folks who are secular, agnostic, even atheist friends of mine, I think God still reveals himself. If the God I believe in is true and he is, uh, then, then he can still reveal himself through our relationships. He could still reveal himself through his creation. Just this morning, I saw a, a, what do you call it? A herd of 11 deer cross my path. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, so God is still God, you know, and -hmm. and, and he reveals himself in, in so many different ways. And that, that gives me hope. And sometimes through the darkness, the light, is that much more, you know, shines that much more brightly. So I really appreciate you asking that question. It makes me think. So russellmore.com, the newsletter, the Russell Moore Show, how can we find uh, more information about you and all these wonderful ways that you're contributing to the culture? Well, beyond that, I'm not sure you would want any more information (laughs) about me. (laughs) That's terrific. That's terrific. Well, I just, I'm so grateful to, uh, to have been able to spend some time with you. I hope it's not the last time. But uh, yeah, just thanks so much for coming in. This is really helpful. Great pleasure. Yeah, and thanks. It's good to see you, Jess. It's been a couple of weeks. So as always, for our listeners, if you like the show, please please hit that subscribe button. Leave us a review and comments wherever you get your podcast. Jess is smashing that button right now. Most importantly, tell a friend about us. Uh, it's, it's a great way to share, share what we're trying to do here. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. Olam.